1998, an anonymous donor paid to produce a series of billboard advertisements that were unlike anything ever seen before in the United States. The donor wanted no recognition to be included, no mention of a company or a website or a product, and no special graphic artistry was needed in the creation of these messages. That's because the plan was rather unremarkable, if I can be honest. Unpretentious white text on plain black backgrounds containing simple, concise messages, all with the same goal, communicate the voice of God. What started as a campaign intended only to run for three months in a very restricted area of Southern Florida quickly caught the attention of many, including the Outdoor Advertising Agency of America, who picked up this campaign and extended its reach for three more years, covering nearly 10,000 billboards in 200 cities nationwide. It became known as the God Speaks Movement, and its mission was pointing people toward God by placing messages from God in everyday locations that would interrupt life's busyness. Anybody remember seeing one of these? I remember by dr driving by any number of them 10 years ago. And I remember every time I saw one, I think, okay, I have a sense of humor. It's a little funny that God would say, we need to talk. Or let's meet at my house Sunday before the game. But I also remember feeling a little uneasy with the idea of someone ascribing the name of God to these pretty casual, kind of quippy messages. Maybe I just need to lighten up. There's nothing to it. But as I thought about this again this week, it seems that perhaps my unease was the method of delivery or the medium itself. Billboards on a freeway it just seemed to stand in direct opposition to what I understand of discernment, that it's a holy task and one that should evoke some level of reverence, even holy fear in us. Because discernment isn't always necessarily obvious. It's not a drive-by kind of thing, as Pastor Steve alluded to last Sunday. It requires a posturing of ourselves and a faithfulness and a discipline in our daily habits and routines so that if and when God does choose to speak, we are positioned to hear from him and we understand his language. And yet I say all that, I know all that, but I have to tell you that there have been any number of times in my life where I'm seeking God's direction and I get desperate and start pleading with God, please give me a sign, a sign. I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of the fact that just two weeks ago or so, uh, my husband and I were talking with some friends about a decision that we needed to make. And we were putting all the evidence on the table, helping them to understand what we were going through. And I finally got very impatient and I said, I just want God to tell me what to do. And one of the friends pushed in a little bit on that. And he said, well, Emily, what exactly would that look like? What he was asking was, how would I be absolutely certain I knew which way God was leading us? And I'm ashamed to tell you that very quickly I responded to that question saying, well, I'd like to walk out my front door tomorrow morning and see a flashing neon sign in the front yard that says, do this. Told the first hour, I won't be paying any attention to any signs that show up in my yard for the next few weeks, just in case you're getting any ideas. The point is that yes, 
There have been times throughout history, instances where God has chosen to speak through things like burning bushes and talking donkeys and angels who come and visit human beings with messages. But it seems to me that far more often, God delivers direction and wisdom to us, reveals his voice to us in far less obvious and more subtle ways. Which is why this whole art form of listening that we've spent so much time on this fall is so very important. And yet the hard truth of all this, and it is a hard pill to swallow, is that we can be faithful in posturing ourselves, in immersing ourselves in the scripture, and and disciplined in discerning, or at least practicing the habits of discernment in our lives. Those things Pastor Steve pointed out last week, that we examine ourselves and our motives. We weigh out the potential outcomes of any decision we might make, and we empty ourselves of any selfish or conceited ambition. We can do all of that and still find ourselves unsure of what God is saying. I doubt I need to tell many of you that. You probably have lived or are presently living out that reality right now. Because what do we do when we have multiple good and godly options before us? How on earth do we pick one and then confidently move forward asserting that this is the will of God? What do we do when we have multiple options and none of them are without flaw? Does knowing God's will always mean we should be able to identify a way forward that is without complication or challenge? And what do we do when we have postured ourselves, immersed ourselves in the word, put ourselves through the disciplines of discerning and come to a place where we are confident of God's leading and we put it out there only to have someone else contest it? argue with it and say they too have heard something very different from God. What on earth do we do with that? It occurs to me that in our Western, individualistic, independent mindsets, we so often approach discernment as that which is between ourselves and God, a private affair, if you will. And if we are diligent enough holy enough and earnest enough in our efforts, we should be able to figure out what God is saying. And yet, as we just heard read from the book of Acts, the will of God can sometimes only be understood when we engage the community of God in the process of discernment. John Wesley once said that there is no holiness aside from social holiness. And while it's often inferred that what Wesley was talking about there was the connection between social action or social justice in our holiness, others will argue that this was actually a statement of Wesley's ecclesiology. That what he was saying was that in order for us to fully know and understand God, the community of God must be engaged in our lives. So often it is in and through the community that we are molded and shaped and led into a greater understanding of who God is and what he is saying, how he is active and engaging with us, his creation. And it appears to have been this way from the very beginning of the church. So if you have your Bibles open still, look again there at Acts chapter 15. 
Paul and Barnabas are in the midst of yet another of their missionary journeys, and this time they find themselves in Syria. But the the text quickly tells us that upon arriving there, they run into a problem that's in the form of some Judeans who are teaching this very young church of Gentile converts that in order to truly be saved, they need to subject themselves to the rite of circumcision. Now, before you jump ahead and think of these Judeans as old school or late adapters, we should probably remember that circumcision was an absolute of Jewish law. It was the sign of the covenant, that which had marked God's people as holy and chosen for generations. So their teaching was certainly not unfounded or outside of what had been historically understood as the will and way of God. This is especially true when we remember that at this point, Christianity was still considered a sect of Judaism. Additionally, we should probably point out here that this instruction for circumcision by the Judeans was really an inclusive action. They weren't saying, oh, you're Gentiles, you can't be saved. Instead, it's more likely they were teaching and and instructing these believers that in order to fulfill the process of conversion, this action needed to happen. That was, up till this point, their understanding of the law. But Paul and Barnabas arrive on the scene and they begin to push back on this teaching because their understanding of Christ's salvation is that it supersedes any nationality or race or cultural identity. Those professing faith in Jesus Christ were no longer bound by the law. And so in Paul and Barnabas' understanding of the gospel, circumcision was no longer essential to the Christian faith. What we have here are two very different interpretations of salvation on the table. This is tricky because as is often the case in interchurch squabbles, things get confused and lost in translation and the arguments escalate quickly. I love it. The text is so dramatic. It said there was vehement or passionate arguing going on, both sides claiming to know the will and way of God. And what happens next to some degree reminds me of when my kids were young and they'd get into a heated debate about something really important, I'm sure, and each of them was right. And they would come to me, and they would want me to decide who actually was correct in this situation. There would be yelling and screaming and pointing and kicking and crying and on and on and on until finally I would lay down my maternal wisdom by stopping them and saying, go talk to your dad. It's had to feel a little like the situation the leaders at Antioch were in because truly each side of this argument had a spiritual backing of some form. On one hand, circumcision had been a requirement for Jewish people for generations. It was in accordance with the law of Moses. But on the other hand, Paul and Barnabas were trusted servants of the church. They had been sent to teach the truths of the gospel and they had interacted and engaged with the Holy Spirit themselves. Add all of this mess to the fact that just about 15 years had passed since Jesus ascended and the church had been established and there was all sorts of confusion still about all sorts of things going on. Can you imagine at this critical point in the life of the church, how many people must have had a word of prophecy? Everybody and their brother had probably heard a word from the Lord, which made it all the more important 
that true discernment of God's leading was a part and a practice of the early church. So those who were leading the church at Antioch, hearing these arguments about circumcision, realized quickly that the decision they made here was not merely about religious praxis or custom, that ultimately the decision they would make on this matter would have all sorts of ramifications related to the church's belief on who could be saved and how they were saved. So the leaders at Antioch decide to send Paul and Barnabas along with the delegation from their church to go to Jerusalem and seek the counsel of the apostles and the elders of the greater church in this matter. And in so doing, I believe that the church at Antioch enacts this important reality that sometimes in order to discern the voice of God, we must intentionally surround ourselves with the community of God. I think that's really the great point of this chapter in Acts. And from here on, as we continue reading, what we find is a list of roles and a description of the makeup of what a godly, discerning community truly does. So for starters, godly, discerning communities are committed to faithfully listening before speaking. The Jerusalem Council, as we now know it, was comprised of a group of people who had walked alongside Christ and who were left with the responsibility of helping to execute the mission of God in the church, to interpret the leading of the Holy Spirit. And they had experience in this, so they were trusted leaders in this way as the church moved forward. The text said that the council was eager to hear Paul and Barnabas' account of what they had seen happen as they ministered to the Gentiles throughout their travels. And it's important to note here that in verse four, the phrase, they reported everything, is significant. Paul and Barnabas didn't just share pieces of their experience ministering to the Gentiles. The council didn't get impatient and tell them to cut to the chase, wanting to just get to the issue at hand. They listened diligently and patiently. Some commentators have said this reporting of everything would indicate that this would have been a lengthy and detailed interaction. Think of the person in your life that takes a story and draws it way out. That's what we're talking about here. And the council knew that they needed these details and this context in order to be able to truly understand and discern God's movement and activity. But in all that, a side note that I should mention is I think it's important that Paul and Barnabas also recognized that if what they were truly after here was understanding God's voice, that they had to come willing to be fully disclosing That's something we should listen to because I think so often when we seek the counsel of others in discerning the voice of God, we hold back to some degree. But if we're only telling part of the story, if we're only revealing certain details or certain considerations with our communities, then perhaps what we're after isn't really the voice of God. We're after the affirmation of those around us. That's not discernment, that's politicking. Paul and Barnabas shared freely, the text says, and the council listened patiently. That is, until they are interrupted by a group of Pharisees now in Jerusalem, insisting also that in order for these reported converted Gentiles to truly be saved, they needed to be circumcised. 
And do you know what strikes me at this point in the story? The council listened to them, which highlights another uh, quality or characteristic of godly discerning communities, and that is that they listen holistically, and they include not only those who share one point of view, but who also see things typically or to some degree from a different perspective. I think this is what makes discernment a holy form of listening. Because when we extend our communities and our discernment circles to include those who provide perspectives and experiences that we don't have at our immediate disposal, our interpretation of God's activity is at less risk of being subjective or incomplete. The account tells us that everyone was given a chance to speak, and only then the council engaged in the process of discernment. I would imagine that process is as long and potentially painful as you might be imagining it would have been, <laughs> requiring long and arduous deliberations, and it probably got a little sticky at times. So if you have a natural aversion to conflict, don't think about this too much. It'll be unsettling. As I tried to imagine this situation this week, this image came to mind. I love this thing. <laughs> the soul-crushing meeting. Don't you feel like that sometimes when you're in these long deliberations of things? Just now getting it. It really is funny. We are an impatient people for the most part. We want to get to the answer when there is a question at hand, and we want to do so in a way that rocks the boat as little as possible, generally speaking. But that was not this meeting. Verse seven in some translations says, after there had been much debate, or even worse, one says, after there had been much disputing, <laughs> not a meeting that had its uh, just over and done with kind of thing. This was definitely something that was difficult. And yet the council listens, they deliberate, and then upon completing their discussion, we're told that Peter and James are the two who emerge and report the council's findings. Now, Peter would have had incredible uh, credibility, enormous credibility in the setting, because remember, he had received the vision from God where God demonstrated that the gospel was for all, Jew and Gentile, and that vision was later confirmed or ratified by Cornelius, the Roman officer who had converted to Christianity. In Peter's delivery, we see that godly communities include those who have postured themselves to hear from God and who have been obedient in the past to follow God's leading. Because I don't know about you, but when I am uncertain about how God's leading, it's often through people who have walked the journey before me, who have heard from God and who have been faithful to follow his leading, that I get my best guidance and discernment in that situation. This is the kind of credibility Peter had. And so as he stands before the crowd and the delegation from Antioch, and he gives testimony which affirms what Paul and Barnabas have been saying, that those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and who have received the Holy Spirit are in fact saved. No ritual, no circumcision is necessary. In a similar way then, James, and this would have been James who is Jesus's brother, 
who is now at the head of the church and also a part of this council, steps forward. And in him, we see that godly discerning communities include people who know the word of God and who are quick to apply it to their interpretation of what God is doing in our midst. James went to the prophecy from Amos explaining that in the council's understanding and discernment of God's leading, there was affirmation of the idea that circumcision was not necessary for these Gentile believers who had been a part of God's plan all along. Finally then, in the vein of understanding the characteristics and the qualities of godly discerning community, it seems important to note that we read that the council didn't just send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with this word. They made an investment. They sent two of their own, Judas and Silas, along with them. And this was a huge investment because this wasn't a short trip, 300 miles by foot from Jerusalem to Antioch. But far beyond the physical investment that it would have taken, this sending of two of their own communicated to the church at Antioch that they weren't gonna just drop the message off at the door, that they were unified in this decision. And that Godly communities who help us discern God's voice go beyond merely interpreting that voice and they take steps to help enact obedience to his leading. The delivering of the council's discernment by Silas and Judas, even their very presence there in Antioch added credibility to Paul and Barnabas' return it affirmed the unity of the whole church and it demonstrated that the function of godly discerning communities is less about reaching a conclusion or a decision and more about becoming the people of God together. Just like in the church at Antioch, there have been, there are, and there will always be moments where in and of ourselves, we cannot discern the voice of God clearly. And it's in those moments we need to engage the community of God for help. Moments when we can trust that we will find the echo of the Holy Spirit in the voice of others. And so to the end that we desire to hear from God and understand that we may need others to discern his voice, I wanna encourage you this morning to be intentional about engaging godly discerning communities in your spiritual journey. The story concludes by saying that upon receiving this understanding of God's leading, the church rejoiced and celebrated. And we're gonna end this morning with some rejoicing and celebration of our own at the table. And so if you'd like your children to join you, I wanna encourage you at this time to go and get them from Splash. But as we consider the table and the celebration that we are invited to in responding to God's word today, I wonder if you would take a moment and once again, find a posture, bow your heads, close your eyes, find some space to do a little reflecting this morning. Begin with identifying a time or a season in your life when you were unable to discern the voice of God on your own. Maybe some of you are in that season even today. With that experience or season in your mind, begin to identify people in your life that you believe could be a part of a godly discerning community. 
Some of them may already play that role in your lives. And some of you will be tempted to consider, well, I go to church, so I have that community. But I'm talking about something more specific here. I want you to see faces and names of people who walk beside you in life. Specifically, identify the people in your lives who you've witnessed posturing themselves on a regular basis to hear from God and who you know have experienced his clear leading in the past. This might be a group of people that you engage with regularly, like a small group or a Sunday school class, but it could just as easily be a group of individuals that don't even know one another, but whom you consult in a similar way towards the end of understanding God's leading in your life. As you envision those faces and names, ask yourself, why them? Are these people you trust, are immersed in scripture regularly, and who you have witnessed applying the word to their daily decisions and experiences? Are these people who would be generous with their time, willing to stick with you for the long haul, understanding that sometimes discernment can be quite a lengthy and difficult process? And as you think about that developing list, ask yourself, do these people represent a variety of perspectives or do they all seem like one another? In other words, is this group going to help you in an objective way, truly seek to know God's leading. And then finally, are the people who come to your mind, those you trust, not only to help you discern God's voice, but also help you enact his leading? In other words, are they people who just wanna speak into the situation or those who will be faithful in helping you be obedient to where he's telling you to go.